Let's get our Bibles out, if they're not already. And we are going to turn to Mark 10. I don't know, plot twist. Um, we're going to start with Mark 10. We'll go to Ecclesiastes. Um, so turn there real quick, and then uh, let me pray for us, and we'll get started. <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord, all we can say after just rehearsing the gospel through our singing and through our scripture readings and, our, and, and hearing your word prayed, sung and read, uh, was just thank you. Thank you for... Um, for giving us the gift of your son. Pray now that the gospel would be, uh, just saturate this sermon, that you would, Holy Spirit, that you would give us ears to hear uh, your word clearly this morning. Amen. All right, so Mark 10. I know that was a little bit of a twist, but the reason for this is because we're actually going to be ushered into our Ecclesiastes text with the help of the rich young ruler. So look at verse 17. A man comes to Jesus, and he asks Jesus, he says, how can I inherit eternal life? So Jesus references the commandments, and the man says, yeah, I've kept all those, I've done that. Then verse 21, look there, Jesus says, you lack one thing, go, sell all you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And then how does the man respond? He says, he was dismayed by this command and went away grieving because he had many possessions. What happens? What's going on here? Well, this man's possessions got in the way of him trusting in Jesus. This man, he was searching for something. He said he desired eternal life. Did you catch that? So there's clearly something more than his life is offering right now that he is yearning for. He wasn't satisfied with the way his life was. Yet, faced with losing everything that he had worked for, he trusted that his stuff would satisfy him more than Jesus. He desired satisfaction, but he searched for it in the wrong things instead of in the right person of Jesus. So here's our link from that text in the rich young ruler to our text in Ecclesiastes today. Just like that rich young ruler, he struggled to find satisfaction in God because of his wealth. In our passage today in Ecclesiastes, it's going to show us that we too can struggle to find satisfaction in God because of our wealth. Like the rich young ruler, does, does your wealth, your stuff, your money, I'm going to use those words interchangeably, do they pose a barrier to you finding your satisfaction in the Lord because your heart is really chasing satisfaction in those things? We need to be reminded that our hope and our satisfaction will never be found in our worldly things and where those things get us. It can only be found in God alone. And, and that's the main point of our Ecclesiastes text. So if you're taking notes... You can write this at the top. This is the main point of everything we're about to read. Satisfaction is not found in wealth, but in God. Satisfaction isn't found in wealth, or you can say money, or your stuff, your possessions. It's found in God alone. So through Ecclesiastes so far, Solomon has been trying to answer this, some version of this question, what, what's the point of life? 
What does a man gain, he asks. And he's trying to figure it out. We're walking through, watching him examine different areas of life. Work, pleasure, human wisdom, things like that. Well, today, Solomon is tightening that focus. And we're looking at specifically at our wealth, our possessions. And I think Solomon is, is trying to answer two questions in this text. The first one is simply, is wealth the answer? Is this it? Second question is, okay, if it's not the answer, then what is it good for? What's the point of wealth? Lastly, before we begin, I want to issue a warning. Because we're talking about money and possessions, it could be tempting if you, are, if you would consider yourself uh, not to have a lot of money or wealth or possessions, to think that this passage only applies to people who have more wealth than you. You may hear this, you hear wealth and you think just like, rich people or wealth, wealthier people than you. And I would, I would encourage you not to do that. That is a mistake. If we have anything, shirts on our back, we have wealth. What's being examined is not the measure of our wealth, but the condition of our heart in, in relation to however much wealth we do have. So $100 million in your bank account, $100 in your bank account. If you get a paycheck, this applies to all of us. So with that being said, Now we're going to look at Ecclesiastes 5, verse 8, if you haven't turned there already. This is the roadmap. We have five different sections we're going to walk through in this text. And so we're going to have five stops. Each stop along this journey is going to reveal a reality of wealth, a, a, a fact of wealth that God reveals. So total, we'll end up seeing five realities of wealth. Is wealth the answer? Is it going to satisfy our longings? Let's find out. So verse 8, the first reality of wealth is that it won't solve social problems. Verse 8, if you see oppression of the poor and perversion of justice and righteousness in the province, don't be astonished at the situation because one official protects another official and higher officials protect them. The profit from the land is taken by all and the king is served by the field. This point here is kind of like a preamble to the other four points. It's not a complete outlier, but, but whereas the rest of our text speaks, directly, uh, speaks with how wealth directly affects us, this text helps us to, to look at the world and how wealth affects it as a whole. Solomon, in a way, is kind of saying, hey, seeking answers in wealth isn't just a problem in your individual life. It's, just, it's something that's evident in our entire world. And one way you see it is in our social problems. This text says here, if you, you see that it's, it's saying the fallen world yearns for justice and righteousness. You see those words? But, but no amount of money can achieve it. Same sinfulness, it's the same world, same problem. This is a timeless fact. Where money exists and sin exists, there's going to be corruption and oppression and, and when Solomon says, don't be astonished, basically he's, he's saying, frankly, everyone, this shouldn't come as a shock to us, even though this does come to a shock, as a shock to us all the time. <clears throat> he's saying, come on, we know how this works. And we read at the end of verse 8 there, it says the line about one official protecting another, and maybe you can just think of some 
news article or something you saw on the news or on the internet, and you, you could have a good, pretty good picture of what that looks like in 2023, right? Verse 9, he's writing here another proverb saying that those at the top and in authority are the ones that profit the most from the work they don't do. And again, we look at our current world and we can probably see that happening as well. So Solomon often does this in Ecclesiastes where he just says, look, this is nothing new. This is always going to be the case. So what do we do with this? Remember that the social injustice in the world can't be solved with money or anything in the world for that matter. And, and remember this in turn, and remembering this in turn helps us to face the world with more sober-mindedness when we're not shocked, right? It sets us apart from how everyone else reacts when they observe the same realities we do. And what we can pray happens then is that the world sees our lack of panic, sees our trust in God, and then we have a chance to share that we have a Father who has a plan of salvation for this world that looks so broken. And we can point to a hope that is outside of it. But if we panic, it doesn't really make it seem like we're trusting what we're saying, does it? So don't panic. And as Solomon puts it, don't be shocked. Don't, don't be astonished when you read or you watch the news. And so we see right off the bat, we are shown a reality of wealth that shows that wealth's promises are already falling short, right? Wealth doesn't solve social problems. Let's look now to our next reality, that it cannot satisfy our hearts. Wealth cannot satisfy our hearts. <clears throat> Let's look at verse 10. The one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This, too, is futile. When good things increase, the one who consumes them will multiply. What then is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? The sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. Here, if you notice, you'll see a series of three different proverbs. They're just bluntly laid out there for us. Uh, verse 10, we'll start there. Makes me think of Paul writing in 1 Timothy 6, which is the scripture reading we, that was read this morning. Paul said, but those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So Paul and Solomon here are both speaking of how our money can be an idol. Money is an amoral thing, right? So it's, it's not good and it's not bad. It's a creation of God. And we think of like money, you're thinking of like maybe a dollar bill, but think of wealth and possessions like, you know, Abraham and his cows, <laughs> right? Like wealth is a, is a creation of God made for us to steward. So it's, it's not evil in and of itself. But as Paul said, it's loving money, loving our things, that is the issue. It's a very wrongly misplaced love. This is a theme here, idolatry. So a quick refresher. Remember, idolatry is not just trusting in images of, of a false god like we read in the Old Testament. It is that. 
but it's also trusting in anything in the place of the one true God. It's reversing that order of creator and creation, and it's trusting in the creations rather than the creator. And just like all idols in scripture, they're going to overpromise, they're going to deceive, and they're going to leave you hanging out to dry, and they will never, ever satisfy you. Wealth is, as an idol, is no exception. It just falls right in line with the others. So verse 10 reveals that silver, it's, as in this text, money for us, is, is an idol that cannot satisfy. We've got to take this to heart. Verses 11 and 12, moving on, can be summed up, more money, more problems. <laughs> I think. Uh, you, you have more stuff, you've got to take care of that stuff, right? It's, it's not all it's cracked up to be. I bought a house, now I've got to pay insurance, got to pay taxes, got to find a bug guy to go spray the house. I've got to cut down a tree for like $3,000. That actually happened to me last year. It was the saddest. You want to talk about meaningless just, <laughs> you gotta, I got to figure out how to replace our windows. And, you know, the list goes on and on and on. More money, more problems. If you acquire stuff, you got to find a place to put it. It's not all it's cracked up to be. Before moving on, I do want to slow down and make sure that we're all on the same page with what Ecclesiastes means when it uses that word satisfied. Go look down and find that word. It is important because it's one of our key words for today. It's in that main point, the main idea of the sermon that I told you, satisfied. It comes up here in verse 10. It's in chapter 6, verse 3. You can find it there. If you look in verse 7, it's in that closing proverb that sort of concludes this section. So three times it shows up. So it's important to get the meaning of this word right. The word satisfied, I, I think that we're used to using it in a more shallow way in our culture. And usually it's I think of like restaurant reviews or I don't know, Amazon or something. Or, or you ever been to a bathroom where there's like buttons on your way out that have like a thumbs up and thumbs down. You got to hit the button to say if you're satisfied with the cleanliness of the bathroom or something. By and large, it's, I, it's, what, what that's showing us is that it's a consumeristic idea. I think that we mostly attribute to it. Less like revealing the longings of our heart and more like just revealing our preferences or our expectations. But this word should communicate deeper longings from our heart rather than just those preferences. Uh, the movie Lion, if you have not seen it, is a strong recommendation from me. It is a story about a boy named Saru. And he's from India. And he's separated from his mother as a tiny little boy, like my boy's age, between like two and four or five years old. He, he gets on a train with his brother. Without his mom, he falls asleep, and he's taken miles and miles away from his mom. And he wakes up, doesn't know where he is. The officials can't help him find his, find his village because he, he doesn't know the name of it. He just knows what it looks like. And so he's put in an orphanage. And he was eventually adopted by an Australian family who loved him, took great care of him. But Saru had a deep, deep longing to find his mother. He just knew she was out there. So he searched for her for years. And he kept on searching, and he couldn't stop because it's his mother, right? Then a technology came along called Google Earth. 
And Wikipedia said that Saru spent 9,855 hours for three years on Google Earth trying to search for that, that railway station in that village that he had the picture of in his mind but didn't know the name of. And 25 years after Saru was separated from his mother, he found her village, and she was still there. And the reason she was there, this is crazy, is she said, I never, I never wanted to move because I wanted to make sure my son could find me should he ever come back. Isn't that incredible? Saru wasn't satisfied with the idea that his mother was lost. He had a hole in his heart for his mom, and it just couldn't be filled. Even by his adopted mom, who loved him well and, and cared for him well, but he still searched for his mother. And that's taking that word satisfaction and giving it a lot more meaning, right? So here's, here's where it comes to this text. The depth of satisfaction that all of our hearts are seeking, that is a much deeper depth than even what we just talked about with Saru. So whether we know it or not, yeah, our, our hearts search for the satisfaction that only God can fill. It's a God-shaped hole. Jared described it like that a couple weeks back. We're searching for true rest, ultimate peace, purpose, a belonging, a, a savior, a redeemer, and a, a loving father. Do you see how deeply your heart's yearning for satisfaction actually goes? But our stuff isn't the answer. It's not going to satisfy. I want you to fill in the blank to this question here. We're going to do a little experiment together. If only I had blank. Can you fill that in, in your, in your head? If only I had blank. I want you to think of something. If only I had a uh, better job. If only I got a raise. I'm not saying that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> Hang on. <sighs> I should probably clarify. I'm giving you examples. <laughs> if, only, if only I had a better job, a raise. If only I had a house, a bigger house. If only I had a working car. Here's, here's one for all of us at LBC I'm convicted of. I think if only we had a building where we could all meet in together, right? <laughs> um, whatever we just filled the blank with here, could that reveal what your heart is tempted to find your satisfaction in? That's the point. We, we all need to heed Solomon's wisdom here, that, that none of those things in our minds or anything else you thought of will bring us the satisfaction that we are desiring. Do not hope in those things or place your joy in those things. They will let you down like all idols will. Let's now look to our third reality of wealth. Wealth starts at birth and ends at death. Let's look at verse 13. Here we have the first of two tragedies that Solomon writes of. Verse 13. There is a sickening tragedy I have seen under the sun. Wealth kept by its owner to his harm. That wealth was lost in a bad venture. So that when he fathered a son, he was empty-handed. As he came from his mother's womb, so he will go again, naked as he came. He will take nothing for his efforts that he can carry in his hands. This, too, is a sickening tragedy. Exactly as he comes, so he will go. 
What does the one gain who struggles for the wind? What is more, he eats in darkness all his days with much frustration, sickness, and anger. So here's a man that Solomon has said has lost all his wealth in a bad venture. This doesn't necessarily mean it's an immoral one. could be anything. Maybe it was foolish. Maybe it wasn't. We're not told. But the point is that he had it all, and then he lost it all. And this is sad because at the end of his life, he has nothing, just like he had nothing when he was born. And the end result is a picture of a man in, in verse 17 that put so much of his satisfaction in his stuff that when he lost it, he was an angry, frustrated man the rest of his days. He lost his stuff and he lost his joy. Solomon is showing us that we too this too could be our fate. We could do everything right, financially speaking, and lose it all. We're not guaranteed our wealth for tomorrow just as much as we're not guaranteed our literal lives tomorrow. This is really sobering stuff. I remember when my grandfather passed away. I was in college, and my mom had asked me if I could go sit at his house while the Salvation Army came to take away his things. So my mom and aunts and uncles had, had taken all they can and uh, taken all they could of, of his belongings, but just couldn't take any more, didn't have the bandwidth. So Salvation Army came, and, and I, I, I'll never forget just sitting there watching them just take, take so many things worth hundreds of, and, and maybe even thousands of dollars from his home, priceless memories and, and a value. And, uh, yeah, it was just a reminder in that moment, oh, my goodness, like, yeah, our, we can't take those things with us. And, and then, to kind of add, add to the point, I don't remember what I was doing or why, but I was at a thrift store in that same town a week or two later. And I kid you not, I look on the shelf, and I see my grandpa's coffee and, like, flour and sugar containers sitting up there on a shelf. And I, I know it was his, I'm, I have no doubt. Um, I was just like, man, that is, that is a sobering reality. Our, our stuff matters, but it, but it doesn't matter. It could just end up on a thrift store shelf someday. How much does your stuff mean to you? Verse 16 says it the simplest. It says, as we come, so we will go, regardless if we have, any, have wealth at the end or not. 1 Timothy 6-7, again, this is part of what we read this morning. For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out. Two points of application here. First one, store up your treasures in heaven, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Think eternally. If the answer to our need for satisfaction isn't under the sun, it's above the sun, as Aaron put it last week. By all means, use your wealth, live, love others, Glorify God. But Christian, do not live like a functional atheist and forget you have an eternity that's coming up quicker than you think. If you have trusted in Christ for your salvation, you know this world is not your home. So don't live like it and put too much value in your things. If you are here and you are not a Christian, I too encourage you to store up your treasures in heaven. 
this is my plea for you to see that surely this is not all that life offers. And the solution to your greatest need isn't under the sun in worldly things. It's above the sun in Jesus Christ. The true treasure you've been looking for isn't in this world. It's Jesus. Your greatest need isn't wealth. It's not anything that you own or anything in this world. Your greatest need is having your sins forgiven and having an eternal eternity secured with your loving Father. So don't settle for lesser things on earth, which you can't grasp like the wind anyway. Go for the treasure that is Jesus Christ and trust all of us that are in this room who are believers and trust what God's word says, that he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. He's the treasure you've been looking for. He's the satisfaction you've been looking for. The second point of application, this man, he, he lost his things and he lost his joy. He was not thinking eternally and his satisfaction was in his things. So I want to pose this question to you as another diagnosis question. When you lose your stuff, do you find that you lose your joy or any, any part of your joy? How are you affected spiritually when things don't financially go your way or when something breaks? I have seen this in my own heart uh, when my kids like bang up by walls at the house or, or, or I'll see a new scratch on our car or something like that. And if I'm honest, I've confessed that there are, I want to confess to you that there are times when I've been more angry with the fact that something's broken in my house, like so mad that there's a dent in my wall, more angry there than I am, or, or I'll say the word saddened. I'm more saddened, I've lost joy with that than I am with the fact that my son disobeyed me when I told him not to hit the wall. So what should have been a moment of me shepherding my son that's more important than fixing my wall. And yet, I have seen like, my heart. Like, I, I get more frustrated, lose joy over that. That affects my heart more. That's, that's a telling thing. So I say that just as another point to diagnose that we all struggle with finding satisfaction in our stuff. Our things fall short. So wealth is not the answer in this life. Not, no satisfaction here. Let's now look to our fourth point. And finally, here's some good news, right? Wealth is a gift of God. Let's look at verse 18. Here is what I have seen to be good. It is appropriate to eat, drink, and experience good and all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life that God has given him because that is his reward. Furthermore, Everyone to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also allowed him to enjoy them, take his reward, and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God, for he does not often consider the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. At the beginning of the sermon, I said there were two questions Solomon is trying to answer. One, is wealth the answer? Hopefully we've seen by now, the answer is no. The two, if it's not the answer, then what is it good for? This is Solomon's answer to that question. It's good for enjoying as God's gift. If you've caught on by now, any time that God is mentioned in Ecclesiastes, he's not mentioned all the time. So if he is, it's really important to lean in because something important is coming. 
So look at where God is mentioned here in this text. You'll notice that some version of the word gift or giving, given, is next to that, next to the reference of God. You see that? In each case, this is saying that God is the giver of wealth. God is the one acting and giving. So this means something significant for us. If our possessions and our money are a gift from God, that means that our possessions are God's to begin with. He actually owns everything. No one can give what isn't theirs. So the same goes for God. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So this is, this is a shift away from a worldly way of thinking that our stuff is ours. And it is, this should be a freeing thing for us. It doesn't mean that we don't care about stewarding our possessions well. No. In fact, we should be even more careful because now we're looking at this as something that has been entrusted to us. We want to take care of what has been entrusted to us. But there is a shift of thinking from ownership to stewardship. So it's like when my youngest son takes a toy from my oldest son, and my oldest son says, hey, that's mine, to which I respond, no, actually, son, that's mine. <laughs> right? Parents, have you ever said that? Like, no, actually, I own it, so you need to share. <laughs> in, the, in that same way that I own my kids' stuff as their father, in reality, our Heavenly Father actually owns our stuff. And, and when we don't then own our stuff ultimately, then the burden of our things on our lives isn't there anymore. Like, that's freeing. If my roof leaks in my house and I own that house, I got to fix it. That's a big burden to figure out. But if I rent the house, I need to take care of that house. But if my roof leaks, I just call the landlord, right? It's no big deal. In an ultimate sense, if everything we own is actually the Lord's, then we can trust him to take care of our needs. See that? So our hope doesn't hinge on the state of our possessions, of our wealth. And then there's the cherry on top. Not only does God want to give us wealth and give us things, but he also wants us to enjoy them. Verse 19, Solomon says, furthermore, it's like he's saying, and if that wasn't enough, God wants us to find joy in what he's given us. No father gives a gift to his children and doesn't expect him or her to enjoy it. Knowing our wealth is a gift from God changes our heart posture from, I deserve this, to, I don't deserve this. But, man, wow, praise God that he has allowed me to enjoy it anyway. So what we're seeing here is this reversal of idolatry. It's, it's rightly ordered worship in the way that God designed. It's enjoying God's gifts not as satisfying things in themselves, but because they point to the one who does fully satisfy. That means that we can use what God has given us for God's glory and for others' good. And lastly, realize this, that wealth is a gift of God, but it's not the best gift that God gives. Jared made this point a few weeks ago in a similar way. God sent his son in Jesus to pay the debt of our sin. Sins like finding satisfaction in other things instead of him. So that we could be forgiven. 
We can be redeemed. We can find our satisfaction in him. When you trust in Christ, then you don't have to be a slave to the world and its stuff to make you happy. When you trust in Christ, he takes the place of your stuff in your heart. And he fulfills your greatest needs, which is your need for a savior first and foremost. And then, and when your greatest need is satisfied, that's when you know, your perspective and your priorities and everything changes. So please, if you don't know Christ, turn from your sin and trust in him for salvation. He wants to change your life and, and he wants you to be satisfied in him. Think of the lyrics of, my worth is not in what I own. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in him, no other. My soul is, what? Satisfied in him alone. Praise the Lord that we don't have to guess where our ultimate satisfaction lies. It lies in Christ alone. So we've answered the, both the questions, is wealth the answer? No. What is it good for? If it's not, we just answered that. That we have one final reality of wealth to go. And honestly, uh, this is Solomon lands the plane pretty hard here. And so I'm just this is the heads up to prepare yourself for a, a kind of a jolting end. And it feels I really wish I could have ended on this point that I just that I just preached, but that's not the text that I've been given. And 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 this is what we need to study. We, we, we study all of God's word at this church. So just know that, yeah, the, the end feels a little abrupt, doesn't quite end the happy ending what we, that we want, but, but there is a reason for that, and we need to sit in that and understand what, what Solomon's getting at here, okay? So look down at verse 1 of chapter 6. Here is a tragedy I have observed under the sun, and it weighs heavily on humanity. God gives a person riches, wealth, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all he desires for himself, but God doesn't allow him to enjoy them. Instead, a stranger will enjoy them. This is futile and a sickening tragedy. A man may father a hundred children and live many years. No matter how long he lives, if he is not satisfied by good things and does not even have a proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For he comes in futility, and he goes in darkness, and his name is shrouded in darkness. Though a stillborn child does not see the sun and is not conscious, it has more rest than he. And if a person lives a thousand years twice, but does not experience happiness, do not both go to the same place? All of a person's labor is for his stomach, yet the appetite is never satisfied. What advantage then does the wise person have over the fool? What advantage is there for the poor person who knows how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eyes see than wandering desire. This too is futile in a pursuit of the wind. Whatever exists was given its name long ago, and it is known what mankind is. But he is not able to contend with one stronger than he is. For when there are many words, they increase futility. What is the advantage for mankind? For who knows what is good for anyone in life in the few days of his futile life that he spends like a shadow? Who can tell anyone what will happen after him under the sun? 
Let's go back up to the top of chapter 6. Here, Solomon is writing of another picture of a tragedy. But as with the first man, he, the man in that first tragedy, he had it all and then he lost it all. This man had it all, but he was not able to enjoy any of it. So the main point is, although God gives wealth, it's actually not promised that we will enjoy that wealth. This man who's the object of this tragedy here, it, it says that God providentially and mysteriously, wish we could get into that, but we don't have time, providentially and mysteriously does not allow him to enjoy all that he has. I think that the text is saying that this can play itself out in two different ways. So the first way is there in verse 2. Look at verse 2. With a stranger enjoying the man's wealth, that's, that's the first way. We're not told why. Maybe, maybe he's terminally ill, this man. Maybe he's disabled in some way. Maybe he's captured, enslaved. So all of his things are taken from him. But he can't enjoy his wealth. Someone else's. But the second way that God may not allow a man to enjoy his gifts is there, there in verse 3. In this case, Solomon describes a man who has it all, and he never loses it, but he lives unsatisfied all his days. He never finds how to enjoy his wealth because he never fears God. And he sees his thing, and he never sees his things as, as gifts from God. So he lives his whole life with everything, and yet he's miserable. And he dies with no legacy. Solomon, he's wanting to, us to see how sad this picture of this man is. This is the end result of one who does not find his ultimate satisfaction in the Lord and finds it instead in his things. And then he uses one of the most tragic of comparisons. He uses the comparison of a stillborn baby and states that the baby's position is better off than this man's. And this is, this is a tough one. It's a tough one to read, tough one to preach. Um, I know... For some in this room, you're, you've read this just now, and, and there's just an intense sting um, bringing up. Maybe you've had a personal experience with either a miscarriage or stillbirth. And yeah, I'm, I'm really sorry if, if this stings. And even, even after I try to address this, um, I just want to be very sensitive to, to the fact that this is in this text and we're having to read it. After I address this, I would love to, to meet with anyone who is, is still struggling to understand this text or this leaves you with any questions or it just brings up hurt of, of just, yeah, personal experience. The pastors want to shepherd you through this. We want to love you through this. So, so just, I just want to say that. Please know that we love you and, and would love to speak with you if, if you need to talk further. It seems like Solomon is being tactless here, doesn't it, a little bit? It's just senseless. Like, why, why, of all things, does he have to bring this up? It just seems like poor discernment. But I urge you to see that he's not. He's not downplaying the tragic reality of a stillborn baby. Because he's comparing it on equal footing as a tragedy with another tragedy. He's not saying that a stillborn baby's life is not better lived at all, either. Don't misread what he's saying. What, what he is saying is that a stillborn baby's position is better not because he or she didn't live, 
but because he or she won't have to experience the type of misery that this man experiences. This stillborn baby was spared from the pains and the traps of this fallen world. The comparison is is there to prove this point and to further prove how sad this man's state is. Yeah, so I know this does not this does not leave us feeling good inside at all. But I hope it does point us to the point of this section that we should run to the Lord for our satisfaction and happiness because it truly isn't found anywhere else. It just isn't. We have to trust in the Lord. We have to hope in him and not hope in the world or its things. And, and then, awkwardly, Solomon just kind of stays here in this place. And, and what you see in verses 7 through 12, if you look down at the end, to the end of the chapter, is Solomon, he's just spiraling just spiraling and spiraling. He's, he just asks question after question, and he knows he's not going to get answers, but he's frustrated. So we're going to have to wait until further sermons to follow Solomon down that journey. We will. This is part of a sermon series. But the question is for us, what do we, what do, we do with this? Well, when it comes to our wealth... We heed the fourth point, and we find its worth as God's gifts. And we should forsake any satisfaction and hope in our idols, especially our idols of wealth. And then we hope and we trust in the one who truly satisfies. And, and praise God that we know that satisfaction is ultimately found in his son, Jesus Christ, right? And then we wait patiently on the Lord as we wait and we trust him. And that doesn't mean all our wildest dreams are going to come true. I, I think this is why we have this fifth point. Because you, if you just end at four, it's like, oh, man, great. But then reality hits. And I think that's why verse five is here, to remind us that we trust in the Lord, but we still have to face reality. But we can hope in the Lord, too, right? So hope in the Lord. Trust in him. Live as people with real hope because we do have it in Christ. This is the way this section of Ecclesiastes leaves us, and so this is the way we're going to end as well. Wait patiently on the Lord with all hope. Enjoy his good gifts and find your satisfaction in him alone. Let's pray. Father, we need your help to apply this to our hearts. Help us to see how wrongly misplaced we, we so often... <laughs> Place our, place our value and satisfaction in other things. Help us to, to see the just surpassing worth of Jesus. Help us to store up our treasures in heaven. Amen.